are entering the Freedom Hut. Former CIA Director Pompeo is slated to be the next Secretary of State. How did it go today when the Senate Democrats were waiting at ambush? We'll get into that, plus the latest on will Trump or will he not respond to Syria's chemical weapons, alleged chemical weapons attack. Plus more on the Mueller probe, the Cohen raid, Facebook is lying to you, and some updates on the opioid epidemic. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everyone. Great to have you here with me. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out. Always appreciative of your time. Excited to get into everything that matters in our world today. Uh, the, the Pompeo hearing is what I wanted to, wanted to get into first. And I got to tell you, I think this Pompeo guy is really solid. I wrote a piece today on the on the Hill.com about uh, the confirmation hearings. By the way, I, was, I even picked it was published before the hearing started. And by name, I was able to say, well, here's the playbook. And, you know, Booker is going to is going to Senator Booker is going to make noise about Islamophobia. And it's so when I say things are predictable, it's always fun when I've actually predicted it. And I'm sure many of you had the same thought. Right. I mean, those of you. And by the way, those of you who even care about watching a, a Senate confirmation hearing, you know how many people have ever been thumbs down in the entire history of the Senate? There have been nine people who have gotten that. So it's not exactly high stakes poker for most folks. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. And there have been a lot more who have withdrawn. So there's that, right? Can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen situation. But it's never been a secretary of state. I mean, usually someone who's going to get up in the secretary of state role is uh, is vetted ready to rock, signed, sealed, and delivered. It's generally not someone you're going to go, well, we don't really know who this guy is or gal. Um, and, and that's certainly the case with Pompeo. In a sane world, let me just say, it's not even a close vote. In a sane world, all the Democrats would vote for this guy too. Uh, and, and look, it hasn't gone to a floor vote yet. It's, it actually is going to be close. It's going to be tight. You have Rand Paul saying that he's not going to vote to confirm Pompeo, uh, which I think is... You know, it's I go back and forth with Senator Paul. I've interviewed him many times. I I like the guy's ideas, and I and I also like his low key, kind of Kentucky surfer dude demeanor. I I dig it. I dig all that. Uh, but I think sometimes it's a it can be a little self serving on the I'm the only sane voice on presidential, uh, you know, war powers and congressional authorization. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see if we can come around to my side of it on this one. I, I doubt it, though. And then there are just some Democrats who were engaged in the most shameless of, uh, of shameless grandstanding today. But we expected uh, we expected that to be the case. Um, and, and Senator Cory Booker really led the charge. He was the head of the Democrat ambush against Pompeo today. So uh, I, I think it's likely he'll get through. But I- the fact that it's even going to be tight, they... I think the vote was 66-33, I think. Don't quote me on that one, but I'm probably right, because I tend to be right. Um, 66 And like I said, go to thehill.com. You can see my latest piece. Or we actually put it up on facebook.com, too. 
good piece. Some of the folks in D.C. were like, wow, it's like you understand Pompeo. I'm like, obviously. Uh, but 66-33 was the vote with the Senate the last time, almost a year ago to the day. I mean, it was pretty close, or to the month. Uh, 66-33, to make him the most powerful spy in the world. I know we don't say spy, we say CIA director, but you get what I'm saying. right? Spy master, if you want to be a little more technical. Chief bureaucrat of an intelligence agency, if you want to be a little more accurate, because that's actually what the job is. You are a bureaucrat. You are a politician who does a lot of managing down. That's what the CIA director does. No karate chops, no exploding cufflinks, no lasers coming out of your car. Or even if you have those, you'd have to install them yourself. I don't know. It's probably possible now. Uh, but they voted 66-33 for him. And now people are saying, well, is it, is it going to happen? Is he going to go through or not? It's going to be close. you got Senator McCain, who's uh, fighting, uh, fighting bravely against cancer right now, but he, he's not going to be there for, for the vote. Uh, you have Rand Paul. Remember, we only got, what is it, 51, 51-49? Not, not a lot of leeway here. Uh, but I, I think that you'll get some uh, I think that you'll get some Democrats who realize that sanity is the better option here as much as has hashtag resistance is fun. Remember, all they can do is what they're going to they're going to knock down this secretary of state. You know who the next secretary of state should be if they don't make if they don't put Pompeo through, you know, who I'm going to Bannon just to bathe in liberal tears. It would be incredible. Do I think Bannon should be secretary of state? I don't know the guy. Probably not. But the point is, it should always you always want to have the 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 ace up the sleeve. Be like, hey, you guys don't want to vote for Pompeo? I give you Steve Bannon for Secretary of State. Who wants a piece? So that's what I that's what I think about all that. But I mentioned uh, Cory Booker, who I you know I'm always why are they not thinking about him more? For you hear Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. I know both female, so maybe for the Democrat identity politics machinery that's obviously really important but you don't hear people talking about cory booker for 2020 and i wonder why that is right he's you think he's senator you know there's a lot of stuff the democrats would get excited about so anyway but cory booker was not getting me excited today he was really going after it he was uh and keep in mind pompeo has been on a charm tour and he reached out even to hillary clinton herself just to say, hey, any advice you can give. He wants advice from wherever he can get it as long as it's the best advice. He reached out to every living Secretary of State in advance of the hearing today. He has had the State Department at his request reach out to departed senior state employees in order to say, hey, we'd love, we know you left and you, didn't, you weren't happy under Tillerson. We'd love to have you back. And how much of this have you seen reported in the media, by the way? You know, it's there, but you're not getting a lot of focus on this. And how many of you know, just off the top of your head, this guy that was being skewered today by some Democrats? I mean, mostly Booker. I think there were a couple others that got a little bit. Booker was really going after him. How many know that uh, he was a an army captain, Harvard Law grad, number one in his class at West Point, very well liked uh, within the agency and, and Langley. Folks are not shy about letting their thoughts be known about who runs the, the so-called seventh floor, the executive level. So uh, he was very well like there. You don't get any of that. Instead, you get treated to questions like uh, this one about Islamophobia, basically. When it comes to making sure that we don't have uh, terrorists brewing in 
in places that where Muslims congregate, there's a special place, right? They have a, they have a, it's more than a duty, more than a, a require. it's an opportunity, right, to be treated as, when someone from another faith says it, it, it can get characterized. So if I, do you think that Muslims in America who are in positions of leadership have a different category of obligation because of their religion? That's what I'm hearing you saying. I don't see it. It's not an obligation. It's an opportunity. So can we just back up for one second here? So Cory Booker is basically saying, so, so are you trying to tell me that Muslims have some special place in preventing Islamic terrorism? Yeah, the answer is yeah, actually. It's not saying that every Muslim has some obligation to. Most Muslims just want to go about their lives and do what they do and just be normal folks. But any Muslim who is either in a leadership position in a community where there are some radicals or they're aware of radicalization or any Muslim who happens to know that someone has radicalized yeah, there may be a they're, they're in a better position to one know about it and two do something about it. So yeah, but it was just an effort to try to get him on Islamophobia. That's always, just always remember this: the left will go to the mat not just in favor of the the civil rights of Muslim Americans and you know we we defend those and we support those too, uh, but they'll go to the mat in order to make sure that no one says anything that's a little too terse, even about Islamists, people that believe in political Islam, that believe in Sharia, you know, and they don't care about the hypocrisy of selling out by doing so, right, by soft-pedaling radical Islam, by pretending that there's not something specific at this time in the world, and there is, among all religions, Islam has a unique problem set, that unfortunately affects all of us even well outside of the Islamic faith. That's just a fact. But whenever you try to talk about it, they want to shout you down and yell that you're a bigot and Islamophobe. And also, I can't help but notice that they're pro, uh, pro-LGBT pro and uh, feminist and pro-transgender agenda kind of gets lost by the wayside when they're like, yeah, the Muslim Brotherhood, not so bad. It's no big deal. It's just an aside, but I think it's a, a worthwhile one. Uh, oh, speaking of uh, the pro-LGBT agenda, uh, Cory Booker followed up with this one. When I was a politician, I had a very clear view on uh, whether it was appropriate for two same-sex persons to marry. I stand by that. So you, so it's, you do not believe it's appropriate for two gay people to marry? Senator, I continue to hold that view. It's the same view. And so people that- in the State Department, I met some in Africa that are married under your leadership, you do not believe that that should be allowed? Senator, I believe it's the case we have married uh, gay couples at the CIA. You should know. I treated them with the exact same set of rights. You believe, that, you believe that gay sex is a perversion? Yes or no? Senator, if I, if I can... If yes or no, sir. Moment, if do you believe that gay sex is a perversion? Because that's what you said here Senator, in one my, of your speeches. Yes or no, do you believe gay sex is a perversion? Senator, I, I, I'm going to give you the same answer I just gave you previously. My, my respect for every individual regardless of the sexual orientation, is the same. Now, Pompeo's a pro, and he handled all this very well today. But I got a bunch of thoughts after that line of questioning from, from Booker. First of all, what does any of that have to do? What is his previous position on what was called traditional marriage until about a year ago? Uh, what does that have to do with being Secretary of State exactly? 
And if we are also now, I mean, then remember, this is these are the rules the left the left are creating here. If we are going to drum people out of public life, if we are going to push people out of positions of authority in government based on previous positions on social issues that the left has gotten the courts to agree with them on, the Supreme Court to agree with them on on some of these issues, then that means that find me a a prominent Democrat of the last 10 years can't be in office, can't be a part of the conversation. Barack Obama, traditional marriage candidate in 2008. Hillary Clinton, traditional marriage candidate until it was no longer uh, politically, until it became politically inconvenient for her. Then she switched, of course. So it's just a cheap shot that Booker is taking here. Just a cheap shot. He knows the cameras are on and this is going to this is going to get him on the MSNBC highlight reel. He'll probably be on Maddow's show tonight. I'm actually going to, I'm going to put that I'm going to, I'm going to guess. Let's see. He'll probably be on one of the MSNBC uh, shows tonight just to take a few bows. Yeah. Pummeling that that bigot Pompeo who served in uniform, served his country honorably, was a great CIA director and now wants to help the country actually be better off around the world. Yeah, that guy. Go get him. This is what we're up against with Democrats. This is the way, this is the way they play the game, as you know. Uh, so we'll see. Pompeo isn't through. He's not through the gauntlet yet. I think he will get through. But this is just classic. But they should leak that. But I really, this is, you could call it buck foo, you know, instead of kung fu. They should, uh, you know, every, every battle is won before it's ever fought. That's Sun Tzu. I could do this all day. They should, uh, they should leak that, that Bannon is the next one. If you don't, if you don't give me Pompeo, we're brave. And they, I mean, and, and I want, I want like vintage Bannon. I want big military jacket, hair down to like the small of his back. You know, guy looks like he hasn't showered in like a month. Just came off a park bench. I want him coming into the Senate hearing room covered in old newspapers. I want that Bannon. And he's a street brawler. Look, the guy's really interesting and compelling when he talks. But that that's who they should offer up as the replacement for Pompeo if he does not get through. That'll That'll get some folks in line, I think. So that's a little more on the Pompeo here. A couple other things I wanted to get to with this, because there's something about we haven't touched yet on Russia and what came up today with regard to Russia. Important confirmation, important new information from the former CIA director about Russia that uh, that is relevant to our discussions here. So we'll, we'll talk Russia. We come back. And uh, and then we've got to get into this. It's almost like a countdown clock. I mean, some of the news news uh, organizations might as, might as well just put down like countdown to launch because they're they're assuming although i think they're backing off it a little bit right now they are assuming that there will be a strike against syria i don't know any hour any moment uh, i'll get into more of why i think that's i hope that's not the case uh, and we'll discuss some of all the latest on syria so As always, uh, we've got a lot, my friends, on our docket here in the Freedom Hunt. We'll be right back. Well, I would just say Michael Weinstein, who is a former Air Force officer who founded the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, says that he has been seeing increasing complaints from those inside the intelligence community under your leadership. So um, I think there have been a number of concerns raised. Ma'am, ma'am, if I might, Uh-oh. please. The, the, num- the number of, we call them no left. fear complaints, the statutory requirement decreased from 2016 to 2017. <laughs> 
by 40%. Box lag. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm proud of that. That was like you never seemed to catch on. It's actually very simple. Down by 40% under Pompeo's watch. Is that like a throwing star sound that we have now? The Bucks lap is getting crazy, guys. It's like nunchucks in there. By the way, it was a yeah, no. That's not a boomerang. It's not Australian. It's no, no kung fu Australian movies uh, or buck fu. That's a thing. I'm gonna stay with that for a while. That's what we do on radio, buck fu. Um, so anyway, Pompeo. They they tried to come at him with that stuff, and they came with the weak sauce. And sure enough, he he slapped it down. That was Senator uh, Gene Shaheen. Uh, rhyming names is always kind of a bold thing, you know? Uh, but Gene Shaheen, who was saying that there were more complaints in the Intel community, he's like, actually down 40%, but you're close. You're close. Um, and, uh, yeah, there is that to uh, to keep in mind. I-, I mentioned that we would talk more about what is going on with uh, the Russia situation, and I definitely, definitely want to do that uh real quick let's get john from atlanta in and then we'll talk russia and the hearing today on the other side hey john hey buck i'm your podcast minion from atlanta so i'm usually a day behind my podcast brother you mean what's up john yeah oh brother i've been upgraded nice now i was thinking about um the case with cohen and the mission creep for lack of a better term with this investigation and it would be really cool if trump just did a uh, press conference and just said look this has been going on for 13 months. Nothing has come of it, and now it's going in every possible little direction, and it's getting in the way. And then he pulls something out of the Clinton playbook and says, i got to get back to doing the job for the American people. So from this moment right now, you have 48 hours to come up with physical evidence or computer evidence or anything linking my campaign to Russian collusion. In 48 hours' time, everyone is fired. So you think Trump off. should just go, you think Trump should pull the nuclear option here on the Mueller probe? Yeah, and then think about all like MSNBC, CB, uh, CNN, and Fox would all have like these countdown clocks to the forty-eight hours. I mean, people would, would actually be crying on air at MSNBC. There'd be there'd be no shame over there. They would just there would be like straight up lamentations and rending of garments, gnashing of teeth on air at MSNBC. I mean, people, we I, I think we'd actually see we'd actually see Chris Matthews just like. Uh, you know, a fifth of Johnny Walker, like right there on air, like just just gone. He'd freak out. Um, anyway, thank you for calling in, John. Russia, what's going on with it? We'll tell you after the break. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So this administration has taken a series of actions. To push back. That's not my Vladimir question. Putin. Let's start with my question. But my Senator, question this is, is this what what behavior has the Kremlin shown that it indicates it wants to get along with the United States? Is there any? If so, please share it with me. Senator, I, I I take a backseat to no one with my views of the threat that is presented to America from Russia. And if I am confirmed as a Secretary of State, I can assure you this administration will continue, as it has for the past 15 months, to take real actions to push back, to reset the deterrence relationship with respect to Russia. Don't let the media just slither away from this one, because I think they're going to in the next few months. They're still going to pretend that Trump did something terrible in the election and, and all. I'm not saying they're going to abandon that. But the notion that the Trump administration is soft on Russia 
is it is increasingly a talking point for loons and loons only. It's nuts. It is not just an exaggeration of the facts. It is a denial of the facts in the other direction. Trump has gone after Russia in his first 12 months in ways that matter. Not trying to, you know, not trying to arm wrestle Putin what he sees him at some international conference, not going on TV and getting the a panel of, you know, the 15 analysts they have on at the same time at CNN to all go, "Oh, look at his strong statement against Putin he just made." That's irrelevant. That doesn't really matter. On what matters, Trump has been doing much more than his predecessor did. Much more. And looking at Pompeo's role in all this. Pompeo is a Russia hawk. This is a guy who thinks Putin's bad news, wants to counteract. And trust me, he was running the CIA. He, he knows that Russia's got gotten into all kinds of bad stuff all over the world. There's a particular and it's one that I, I have in my own little. You know, uh, much lower down the food chain way, but there's a particular. uh sensibility and and approach the world you get from being an, an intelligence officer military or civilian you know you see things a different way because you're always looking at the underbelly you're and you're always looking for the underbelly and you develop a a healthy cynicism and a, a useful skepticism in your approach to international relation everything you know all all kinds of stuff and pompeo is well aware i assure you of all the the problems Russia is causing for us abroad. And I mean, once you start, if you dig into what the FSB, the Federal Neyaslozba Bezoplaznosti, I know that's cool, right? It's fun to say. What the FSB is up to, uh, then you know even more that these guys are very, very aggressive and that they are working against us all over the world in all kinds of ways, including here at home. It's kind of amazing. I remember when they broke up that that uh, spy ring, and there was the really like the really attractive Russian spy, and it just yeah. <laughs> Producer Mike's eyes just got like like saucers over there. He was like ah, uh, but yeah, yeah. It, but that turned into like a tabloid story. That was actually a real thing, right? That was that was a re- you know this was a serious. I know you know that, but I just mean everyone's like they were just running pictures of the of that one redhead spy all the time, the Russian, in all the newspapers, but. The Russians are up to very shady stuff. So are the Chinese in this country, but the Russians are up to all kinds of shady stuff um, and, and have been for a very long time. Pompeo is aware of it. He knows we have to counter it, and he knows how to counter it. And I think it's interesting you, you haven't had someone go from being CIA director to secretary of state. I think it's actually a very natural transition. I think before you go into the world of diplomacy, it's really helpful to have a, a true sense of what goes on in the intelligence world. Right. So whether you're military intelligence or civilian intelligence, um, I, I think that's actually a very uh, helpful perspective. So you can tell I, I don't get too excited about a lot of the Trump, a lot of the Trump picks for the cabinet. I'm a Mattis fan. We're, we're, we're all Mattis fans. Right. You know, anyone who when when reporters ask him, like, what do you think about like the Kardashians? And he's like, I'm a secretary of defense. I defend the country. We like that guy. Uh, but, you know, Pompeo, I think, is one of the one of the more inspired picks the administration has had so far. And he's, he's risen to the challenge on Russia. He's a hawk, which is going to make it harder for the media to keep saying Trump is soft on Russia. Trump is. I mean, they'll try, but they're just going to sound crazier and crazier. 
Not that that will stop them. And then one more thing, very important, and this because this will tie into our Syria discussion a little bit, uh, very important confirmation of what I had talked to you about before here and what the news media was almost, uh, they, they were a little shy in reporting it because it seemed like it was such a big story, they didn't want to get it wrong. Uh, but here's what he said. Remember back a while ago, I said there were some Russian mercenaries, and we may have uh, taken a lot of them out on the battlefield in Syria. Here's a former CIA director. Vladimir Putin has not yet received the message sufficiently, and we need to continue to work at that. Um, but it hasn't just been sanctions. The largest expulsion of 60 folks was from this administration. This administration announced a nuclear posture review that has put Russia on notice that we're going to recapitalize our deterrence force. In Syria, now a handful of weeks ago, the Russians met their match. And a couple hundred Russians were killed. A couple of hundred Russians were killed by airstrikes from us. Those Russians were helping Assad. They thought they were going to rush. No pun intended. Sorry. They thought they were going to uh, make an assault on some Kurds who were our, our allies, our buddies. Those Kurds called in airstrikes. Those Russians were annihilated. But that's also something to remember here. We think of what's going on in Syria. I, I think it's natural to think of it as, well, you know, there's there's guys on different sides of this battlefield, but we're deconflicting with Russia and we're going to keep it. Oh, no, things can go south. Things can go bad very quickly and in any number of ways. And the moment that you you realize that you could have 200 people uh, killed who are Russian citizens. And, and we didn't even really, we didn't mean for that to be the case. We're just protecting the Kurds. Now you can see how any U.S. military action in Syria, uh, we need to be aware of the fact that there's some other big players in that neighborhood. Uh, that then factors into my thinking about what are the Russians, what do the Russians believe they could get away with without a major reprisal and say, you know, oops, sorry. Keep that in mind as we're talking about the possibility coming up here of airstrikes, which I, I know people are still very much uh, of the mind that Trump should do something, will do something. I'm, I'm hoping that's not the case. So why, why don't we actually discuss, we'll update on Syria and then we can get it the latest on the Mueller-Cohen uh, situation, the Russia collusion probe. We can't even call it the Russia collusion probe anymore. It's just the get, uh, get Trump probe. That's what it is. We should just call it that. The get Trump probe. That is what they are doing. It is a target uh, or it is a targeted operation against an individual. It is not looking for the violation of a specific crime or even vague crimes. <laughs> so uh, let's all be on the same page with that. 844-900-2825. If you would like to chat, my friends, 844-900-BUCK. Oh, my gosh. They're already leaking the Comey book. Good thing I'm not trying to eat right now. Comey. He's among my least favorite. He really is. You know, and I think I could take him in one on one, by the way. He's got some inches on me. John, I have great handle. I played a lot of basketball as a kid. I think I think I could take him. You know, I can go left. That's right. There are all kinds of things about the buck that people don't know. We'll hit a quick break. We'll be back. What worries you most about any military action we might take, given the very highly complex um, 
landscape in Syria, the many, many actors that are engaged there? Well, there's a, there's a tactical concern, uh, ma'am, that civilian, innocent people, we don't add to any civilian deaths and do everything humanly possible to avoid that. We're trying to stop the murder of innocent people. But on a strategic level, it's how do we keep this from escalating out of control, uh, if, if you uh, get my drift on that. There's Secretary of Defense Mattis saying, look, it's never as simple as just, you know, oh, look at that stuff on the map. Pew, pew, it's gone. That's not the way this works. It certainly wasn't the way that worked last time when, as I mentioned to you a year ago, the airstrikes didn't do a darn thing, really. They were symbolic. But I think we all need to be very careful when our symbolism requires Tomahawk missiles. Uh, because as we've seen, remember, we 200 Russians or so killed. And okay, Putin can't make too much of a stink about it because he doesn't want his own people back home in Russia to realize the extent of Russian involvement in Syria. Uh, and they weren't uniform Russian soldiers. They were paramilitaries who... I'm sure we're contracted by the Assad regime, probably getting, you know, probably getting paid as mercenaries uh, to help Assad out. But what happens if in response to, say, a U.S. Uh, missile strike on some kind of regime facilities and Assad regime facilities and fortifications? What if all of a sudden we find that, you know, a, uh, a U.S. plane gets shot out of the sky by something that seems really sophisticated? Assad says, oh, no, it was the, the rebels stole that from us. How do we respond to that? We say, oh, Buck, we're going we're gonna to then bomb some more Assad stuff. Okay, well, then all of a sudden, you know, we, we got U.S. embeds with some Kurds, and uh, they get hit with, with airstrikes from Assad directly. And, you know, in that time, Assad's like, well, we didn't know. We thought it was something else. I mean, I, I'm... This is like you know, war gaming you would do with uh, with a couple of buddies after work, but you understand you're catching my drift here, as uh, Secretary of Defense said, which is this stuff is never clean and easy, and when you when you look at what could go wrong, I think you see that the uh, costs greatly outweigh the benefits of anything meaningful, and if we're not going to do anything meaningful in Syria, then why would we do anything at all? to show the world that you can't get away with chemical weapons usage. I've noticed people saying in the argument last few days, well, look at North Korea used chemical weapons in an assassination plot that was successful against Kim Jong-un's half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, in what I think was Malaysia in the airport, where some female assassins rubbed VX on his face, which, by the way, yikes, not a good way to go. Uh, and then also we had this uh, Russian defector in the UK who was uh, also hit with the Novichok Russian nerve agent. But I bring those up not, because I, I think it illustrates a different point from what some of the more hawkish let's bomb Syria folks. Uh, I, I think it makes a different point than they think, which is that, yeah, exactly. Those the chemical weapons got used in those two places. We're taking we got sanctions. I don't even know if we could sanction North Korea any more than we are. The only way to sanction North Korea more is to start sanctioning other people like China more. And then things get a little little rocky. And we have sanctions in in uh, Russia and in, in response to what they did, what the uh, Russian government did with Novichok, that uh, nerve agent. Um, so in letters, we didn't bomb them. 
So we, we don't have some consistent policy of, well, if you're behind a chemical weapons attack, we're going to bomb you. That's not our policy. So what is the policy that people are pushing for here? Assad is really, really bad and dis- does really miserable, terrible, awful things. And so we just want to show him that we dislike him and think that he's wrong. He's been doing this for years, everyone. As I've mentioned, a half a million people have been killed in the Syrian civil war. In the most brutal ways imaginable in many cases. So this is where we draw the line. Hmm. Uh, as I've said to you, people now, now I know this is where I get pushback buck, but you said Obama didn't enforce his red line. That was bad. Yeah. Obama was the one who created the red line. Trump is now in a position where, okay, well I'll enforce it, but now we realize, okay, it didn't work last time. So are you going to, you're going to do more. You're going to drop more bombs or send more missiles. To what end? Uh, I, I also I just think that there's a, a higher level narrative battle that's playing out right now, a battle of narratives. There are those of us who see what's gone on in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the lesson we take away from it is uh, no more trying to rebuild societies or, or no, no more trying to free societies in the grip of Islamic totalitarianism. They it, it's not worth it to. Our lives and, and it's not worth the loss of lives and treasure over here. And there there's way too little gratitude from those countries and from the international community for what we've done. Uh, you know, there's, it's a thankless job to eliminate vicious despots or in the case of the Taliban, a vicious organization, you know, a bloodthirsty tyrants and, and then try to free people because ultimately they don't like us because we're non-Muslim Westerners. And we're in their country. And when I say they, I see, I know this is unfair because actually in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of the people there are, and I would say strong majorities are, are very thankful that they no longer have those regimes in place. But it only takes, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent of a population to basically make a country ungovernable, uh, ungovernable and make your life miserable trying to trying to make it governable. We're just not doing it anymore. We shouldn't do it anymore. It's also amazing, isn't it, to watch so many people in the national level media who take the position that we should do something about Syria and Assad, but any militarization or additional federal effort at our southern border, that's that's not even a national security issue. How is that possible to think that way? I mean, it's based on either ignorance or, or ignorance, stupidity or dishonesty, but. It's commonplace among the media elites. They really think that this is that Syria is a bigger national security issue than our own southern border is with all the uh, drug trafficking, human trafficking, illegal crossing and just the, the vulnerability that it, it uh, creates for this country. So we'll see. I, I'm really hoping that there is not a. Uh, I'm hoping that there's not going to be military action by the way i mentioned Rand paul before here here's he, he was doing the Rand paul thing today but i think that uh, there's still a great deal of potential for uh, hostilities that's what some call it that's when they don't want to use the word war but yeah i think we're i think something's going to happen in syria and i've been very clear that the constitution doesn't allow the president to do this without first asking congress I wish everyone would just get consistent on this one. I know plenty of Republicans who hated hated the idea of Obama taking a strike, and now they're pro-Trump taking. You know, we we need to be consistent here. This is not 
time for petty partisan squabbles. Um, but it, it is it is my hope that uh, Trump is just going to condemn and work harder with allies in the region to put more pressure on the Assad regime and you know, not not make this our military's problem. ISIS became our problem. Let's not make Assad our problem too. That's how I feel about this. Uh, we got to talk about the Mueller probe, guys. Coming up, it's just. Keeps getting crazier. We'll hit that and more. Stay with me. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show, my friends. I want to talk to you about Lion James Comey. That's what Trump calls him. I think there's a, they actually have a website now going, too, right? Lioncomey.something or other. Uh, so his book is coming out now. And the first excerpts have been given to friendly anti-Trump, get-Trump publications. No surprise there. And we have, for example, the following. This is the best one that I've seen so far. Uh, This one comes courtesy of my friend Ben Dominich from The Federalist. Uh, This is an excerpt from Comey's book, which is called No Higher Loyalty and can be yours for the discount price of like $40 for the hardcover or something. You know, Comey, just stop, stop, uh, stop being greedy. Really expensive for a book. Um. I'm just kidding about all that. Well, not really, but here's what Comey writes in this new memoir, which is just an assault on Trump. And look, he he sees what the market wants. Comey is, you know, you know, he actually reminds me of, for those of you who are are Game of Thrones people, he's very much Littlefinger-esque. He reminds me of Littlefinger. I mean, sometimes he's with the good guys. Sometimes he's with the bad guys. But it's really just all about him at the end of the day. Although Littlefinger doesn't even pretend to have principles, and Comey does. So in a way, Comey is actually worse than Littlefinger from Game of Thrones. I'm just saying, and he kind of even doesn't really look like him. Okay, no, that's a stretch, Buck. You're off. All right. The uh, the excerpt I want to talk to you about, though, is as follows. I want to give you the full dramatic interpretation of this one. This is all a quote from his book that just came out. Comey writes that Obama sat alone with him in the Oval Office in late November and told him, I picked you to be FBI director because of your integrity and your ability. I want you to know that nothing, nothing has happened in the last year to change my view. That's Obama speaking. On the verge of tears, Comey told Obama, boy, were those words I needed to hear. I'm just trying to do the right thing. I know, Obama said. I know. (laughs) Oh, man, yeah. If he's so sure he's doing the right thing, if he's Mr. Ethics, why does he care what Obama thinks? Are are we really going to pretend that Obama is... uh, Obama is an uninterested... or a disinterested party here? Come on. It's all a full-scale assault on Trump. You know that's coming up. I just want to know. There was a time when, when people who were senior public officials would have thought it was unseemly to just roll up their sleeves, cash in, and get into the middle of the political scrum right away. And I do think it's unseemly. How can any of us have any faith that people that are leave behind from a previous administration of a different party aren't maybe just like James Comey, pretending not to be manipulating things behind the scenes for their own political and partisan ends when that's what they're doing left and right. How, how can we believe that now? It would be foolish 
not to believe that there were deep state elements, not just now, but in previous administrations, too. We are waking up to this reality as a country now. As I've been saying, the same way we finally figure out, oh, wow, the media is all left wing bias all the time. Right. And the, the academy, colleges, universities, left wing bias. A lot of judges, although not all of them, but a lot of the judiciary activists, left wing judges. Now we're seeing it's true of the federal bureaucracy, too. The so-called fourth branch of government, the unelected branch of government, the federal bureaucracy. (sighs) And now we see who Comey really is. Who was, you will recall, held up as being America's last truly honest cop for a long time, right? Even though he's really just a lawyer. A politically connected lawyer. He's a DOJ lawyer. People think that Comey was like wrestling crack dealers and, you know, like part of, you know, there's Crockett and Tubbs and Comey. No. This guy is a, a boardroom brawler. He is not someone who has been doing the work on the front lines. So whenever he starts to wrap himself in the, oh, the FBI, I am the FBI, and the FBI is me, don't let him get away with that. He wasn't a special agent for two decades who was you know, having to worry about some serial killer trying to bury a screwdriver into his neck when he came in through the back door. You know, I mean, no. This is a guy who's been basically a politician his whole life, really. Another thing that we're realizing, and this is going to trans, uh, this will come up again in our conversation about Dershowitz when the Mueller probe is. We'll go there in just a moment together. But another thing that this shows you is prosecutors are political actors, too. And that's why we have to demand such high ethics, and and we should create much greater accountability for them than we currently have. Um, But prosecutors determine the outcome of the last election by not charging Hillary Clinton. Uh, So here's what Comey says in this memoir. Uh, This is according to the Washington Post. Quote, the Washington Post obtained a copy of the book before its scheduled release. In his memoir, Comey paints a devastating portrait of a president who built a cocoon of alternative reality that he was busy wrapping around all of us. Comey describes Trump as a congenital liar and unethical leader, devoid of human emotion and driven by personal ego, end quote. I think psychologists call this projection. This is Comey seeing in someone else what I think a lot of us would in fact see in Comey. Devoid of human emotion and driven by personal legal. That sounds like James Comey to me. The guy who thinks he's giving a constant ethics lecture to the entire country, as well as the president of the United States, right before he decides that he's going to take notes that we've been told by somebody with a clearance, a member of the Senate, were classified, and just leak them to a newspaper. We have the special counsel nightmare because of James Comey. Don't forget it. That's how important James Comey thinks he is. That's how self-centered and narcissistic this lanky maniac actually is. That his own bruised ego, because Trump didn't want him around anymore and fired him, which is completely the president's prerogative, because Comey had his feelings hurt, he was looking for a way. And look, he's a, he is a talented bureaucratic infighter. I'm sure there are few people that you could have ever come across in the federal government who could throw you under the bus as fast as James Comey could. Go back and 
look at the story of uh, how he, with the author, reauthorization of a surveillance program, the Bush administration, and Comey was just so self-serving and so sanctimonious. I can't stand people like this. I mean, if it's coming across that I don't know this guy, but I dislike him, you're, you're picking up what I'm putting down. But he wanted the special counsel because he knew that the bureaucratic process that it would put in place is just going to grind away and be vengeance against his enemies. So the think about this. Comey thinks that it was unfair that he didn't get to finish his term as FBI director. He felt slighted. So he, a senior former FBI bureaucrat, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, took action based on his power and access given to him by the American people, mind you, right? He's doing, he is supposed to serve the American people. He's supposed to use those powers for our benefit. He took that power and used it illicitly and very likely illegally in order to get the process going that would hobble this president and his presidency for over a year, slow down the agenda, waste countless billions of hours at this point of media time on this. I mean, you know, CNN, it's it's like they've all had some kind of a nervous breakdown over at CNN every night. It's like, oh, my gosh, the Comey and the Mueller and the Russia. And, you know, they have no idea what's going on in the real world. They're just all fixated on this. They are fixated on this. And we we have this nightmare because of James Comey. And I think also because there are some people in the Trump administration who just are not were not seasoned enough, did not have a deep enough understanding of who they were really up against. Maybe some of them thought that after Trump won the election that there would be some kind of honeymoon period or, oh, no. I don't know. They, they wanted, at that point, they were more angry than ever. No good faith, only bile and hatred toward the president. That's what they were, that's what they were in for. Uh, but the Comey memoir is going mean, <sighs> to, producer Mike, do I have to read this? I have to read this, don't I? I think I have to read the, uh, John, I have to read this, don't I? Yeah. What do you think? The Comey memoir? <sighs> the things I the things I do for the Freedom Hut to make sure that I bring only the best information. There you go. Ah, I like it. Dun-dun-dun. John's on fire. Uh, yeah, I think there is some stuff in this that's probably made up. I, I got to go in and read it. Not quite as, uh, not quite as much a fantasy as Fire and Fury, but oh, here we go. More excerpts. I should have focused more excerpts. This is what Comey. Comey describes a February 14, 27 meeting in the Oval Office, 2017 meeting in the Oval Office, where he asked Attorney General Jeff Sessions, our boy, we love Jeff, uh, to clear the room so he could bring up the FBI investigation of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn directly with Comey. A key event in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of whether Trump sought to obstruct justice. Quote, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go, Trump said, according to Comey's account of the meeting, some of which he first shared in Senate testimony last year. He's a good guy. I hope you can let this go. Comey writes that he regrets not interrupting Trump to explain that this plea was wrong. He recalls later confronting Sessions, whom he describes as both overwhelmed and overmatched by the job. You mean the job that Comey thinks that he should have? Because that's what's going on there. Forget Lion Comey, it's Bitter Comey. He is a bitter, bitter man. And not just because when he flies in coach, it's really uncomfortable. But I'm sure that's true. I mean, I'm not that tall and it's uncomfortable for me, right? Like, I sit there and, whew, 
But uh, not just because Comey hits his head in hallways sometimes by accident. Uh, he's bitter about a lot of things. And he's trying to take it out of the administration. So this is going to be uh, a story for the weeks ahead, my friends. We're going we're to have to see what they do with it. Um, I'm just wondering, can we get confirmation if Comey actually leaked classified information to the press? Because that's a big deal. And we know, I forget who the senator was who went on record and said that, that, that the memos that Comey leaked were classified, but you could certainly make the case that they are. But all right, uh, Mueller probe, do we want to do Facebook? I love, by the way, what is it, data from Star Trek is what everyone's saying. Data is the one. Is the data the one who's just like no sunlight, Android, the whole thing? Yeah. Uh, Zuckerberg, not a charming guy. Very lucky. Not charming. Uh, and, and really, really unimpressive. I got to say, it's amazing that guy managed to stay in as CEO as long as he has. Uh, so I give him credit for that. You know, maybe he's got sort of Comey's sense of uh, of completely outrageous self-regard. Oh, former special assistant to former FBI director James Comey. Oh, I just... So this is why I see this young F, uh, former FBI guy on CNN all the time. He was literally Comey's little buddy. I didn't know that. He was Comey's assistant. That's why this guy's on TV all the time. I'm like, when did they, when did they make Pajama Boy uh, like their chief legal analyst over there? And now it's because I see it's because uh, it's Comey's. If you guys don't know, I don't know the guys. Uh, Josh Campbell, I see up on CNN, on CNN right now. So he worked directly for Comey. I see. He's part of the Comey Amen Chorus. Ah, I was like, where where did this guy come from? All right, good talk, good talk. We got to come back and, and uh, discuss uh, the the Dersh making an appearance on the show via soundbite. I, we should get him to come hang out. He likes me, actually. True story. Has no idea who I am, but every time he sees me, I'm like, Professor Dersh. He's like, hello. Just like that. Special for me. We'll be right back. You know, right as we were in the break there, I got some news courtesy of uh, producer Mike that I wanted to share with all of you. Mike, let him know. Oh, when you're talking about uh, the Dersh, I, I, I let it be known that I was listening to El Rushbo uh, earlier today, and he was referring to Alan Dershowitz as the Dersh. The Dersh! I mean, I'm sure Rush has been calling that for 20 years, but I'm just <laughs> excited I'm not the only one. I like it. It's, it's catching on now. If Rush is doing it, everyone's doing it, although he probably did it for the first time in like 87. But anyway, um, I like it. Me, you know, when, when I'm on the same when the same side of the issue as Rush, I know I'm in good company. The Dersh. But the Dersh is making some very important points, including this one. And I, I want to deconstruct this with you in just a second here. But here's what the, the good professor had to say. You can find evidence to create or manufacture crimes against anybody if you're determined to do it. That's what's wrong with the special counsel, because they come in with targets painted on people's back. And people like Comey and people like Mueller are going to find crimes, whether they have to go and try to find a technical violation of banking laws on which they can hook pornography stars or things of that kind and even your account which was obviously metaphorical in in part proves again if you're determined to find crimes against anybody you can do it that's why we have to restrict and limit the application of the criminal law to clear unequivocal crimes and don't use it against political enemies unless the evidence is just overwhelming 
I've been trying to tell you, and the Dersh is spot on with this one, and it really is an addendum to the process is the punishment, but also they'll find a crime to punish too. As you said, they'll manufacture one. I remember when I was working on a counterterrorism case and we were looking at a guy, bad, uh, had some, let's just say, some very bad positions about U.S. troops abroad and U.S. foreign policy. He happened to be of the Islamic faith. Uh, and there were some real concerns about him. And, you know, they, I, I remember I was sitting there and there was a discussion with all the different investigators that were involved. Where I was involved, uh, I was running the case, actually. And uh, sure enough, somebody said, well, you know, so we, we can't get him. We thought he was maybe involved with some, essentially, some uh, material support terrorism. But no, we didn't have him on that. And then someone's like, well, you know, I think we get him on a mortgage fraud. And I was like, come on, man. Like, I didn't I didn't leave. I didn't leave Langley to come up here and do work here in New York to get some guy who legitimately uh, had has trouble speaking or, or reading English to get him on a mortgage. Like, if, he, if he's doing terrorism stuff, lock him up. But like, I'm not sitting here saying let's try to put him away for years in federal prison, by the way. For a mortgage fraud that was where the bank had lost no money, it was one of those. It was like, uh, I mean, I, I obviously also can't really get into the specifics here because this ended up not being prosecuted. But I remember, you know, and it was a lot of OT hours in that case. A lot of people wanted to make it into something, and I sat there and I said, no, nope, I want no part of that. You guys want if you guys want me to be part of the mortgage fraud task force, that's a whole other discussion, okay? <laughs> and and then we have to have a talk about why is it that. Uh, you know, if the credit card companies lie to you about your rate switching or moving, which they've all done, by the way, they've moved their their dates around so they can t- jack your APR up and they just get found out and maybe they pay a fine if that. But if you misstate your income or something, on a, it's 10 years, folks, federal prison for mortgage fraud. I mean, usually you don't people take a plea. They don't get the 10, but you can get 10 years for mortgage fraud. If you watch The Wire, you you know that that's actually how they go after one of the very corrupt politicians. They don't get them on corruption. They try to get them on mortgage fraud. But the point is, somebody really goes through all your finances, uh, I guarantee you they could find tax violations. Guaranteed. Of some kind. You didn't pay, you didn't pay taxes on things you bought on the internet that are from out of state. Now, I know there's guidelines for how much, you know, you're not going to usually get jail time for that. But the point, oh, that's, a, you know, uh, tax evasion. Now they've got a tax evasion probe open on you. And a lot of you are like, gosh, Buck, you have to pay. Oh, yeah. You buy stuff online from out of state, you have to pay sales tax on it. Who knew, right? This is the point that Dersh is making. That's why it's so unethical, so corrupt, so disgraceful that Mueller and all the rest aren't looking for crimes. They're going after people. And it just so happens that they are going after the sitting president of the United States of America right now. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Facebook's been served with subpoenas from the special counsel Mueller's office. Is that correct? Yes. Have you or anyone at Facebook been interviewed by the special counsel's office? Yes. Have you been interviewed? I have not. I, I, I have not. Others have. I believe so, and I want to be careful here because that our 
work with the special counsel is confidential, and I want to make sure that in an open session I'm not revealing something that's mm -hmm. confidential. I understand. That's why I made clear that you have been contacted, you have had subpoenas. Actually, let me clarify that. I, I actually am not aware of, of a subpoena. I believe that there may be, but I know we're working with them. The Zuckerberg robot almost had a malfunction. I don't know if I can talk about that in open setting. <laughs> Zuckerberg. Sorry, I'm just bitter because the guy could buy me 90 billion times over or whatever. That's sad, man. I should have been on that hallway in uh, Harvard. My My hallway at Amherst was like, it was like a zoo. It was crazy. We we had the only twenty true story. We had the only twenty one year old freshman on campus, so we were lit. That the, we were the floor to party with because we were the only we had the only twenty one year old freshman. He had served in uh, a foreign military, and so was quite a bit older than his year. And uh, we actually turned his room into a. We would move a desk in front of the doorway and turn his room into a full service bar. Or or other people did that, and I happened to be in the vicinity when they did that. I did not actually publicize and throw those parties and get involved in logistics of getting alcohol for like 500 people or anything. I just happened to be in the vicinity when that happened occasionally. So I'm told that's the story. Back to Zuckerberg. Um, he is uh, he's doing a good job of trying to uh, of why is he talking to people? I, I, I want to boil this down for a second. Let's distill what matters. A lot of you are like, Buck, this Facebook thing. I know. I don't find it nearly as interesting as most of my media peers do. You're giving them a lot of information. They're taking your information. They're monetizing it. This is, this is the reality of, of what's going on. And I don't know how anyone doesn't understand that that's what's going on here. You think Facebook's doing this to be nice? But there's a very important point to be made just in that alone. What Mark Zuckerberg is doing is a big PR move here. It's convincing people that Facebook cares what you think about their privacy practices, cares about your privacy. Facebook doesn't care about your privacy. Facebook makes money off of violating your privacy. That's the whole point. And they make the they literally make the rules. They get to determine what's shared, who sees it, what and all that stuff. You think they're really sitting around like, oh, we have an ethical responsibility, blah, blah, blah. Please. It's total nonsense. It really is. Um, but there's obviously a lot of uh, a lot of folks who, who are clinging to this belief that the progressive platforms, which is what all social media platforms are right now, uh, aren't actually just rapacious machines of capitalism, which they are. They absolutely are. And, and you know what? I'm OK with that. I get it. All right. You know, there's there's nothing on there's nothing you're, you're putting on Facebook that you should care if anyone knows or sees. You know what I'm saying? So th there you go. Uh, oh, well, there was one other thing that he... Uh, okay, so so he said they're working with the special counsel. I think that's significant-ish. It just shows you how far this special counsel monster extends now. It's just the tentacles of the octopus are, are touching on everything these days, right? All, they're all over the place. Remember, Comey got that special counsel going, and now you got Facebook executives or lawyers or whomever they have sitting down with them uh, all because Hillary lost the election. Because, oh, it's just so unthinkable that Hillary lost the election. You know you know what's amazing? This is an aside. This isn't even the first time in my life that Democrats have essentially refused to believe that their candidate lost the election and cried like little babies. I remember Bush v. Gore. Oh, you know, Bush won because of the Supreme Court. They didn't believe that he won that election. 
I remember being in college and seeing people put up posters on their on their walls. Another college dorm story of the popular vote of Bush v. Gore because I, I had just started in school then. So, you know, this isn't the first time they're not they're not even first time offenders on the delusion of our candidate didn't actually lose. Like a bunch of crying babies and they'll they'll tank the whole country, they'll tank whatever they have to. To make them feel better about this one. Uh, so that so anyway, working with the special counsel, that's happening. And also notice Zuckerberg's like, I don't know if we're under subpoena, but we are working with the special counsel. Well, what does that mean? I thought that these companies, and I, I thought this because they've said in the past, they will only respond to subpoenas about their information. They won't just share it freely with law enforcement. Kind of sounded to me like he's saying, yeah, we'll like give them whatever they need. Right? Working with, not, you know, under subpoena, we will, uh, because of the power of the judiciary, yada, yada, we'll give you. No, no, no. It was just like, oh, yes, we will give them anything they want. Please change my battery. Well, that's that. And then there's also uh, the the issue that came up before about the usage of data and the Cambridge Analytica thing. Again, I think, a, if not a non-story, a hyperventilated story. Like, oh, my gosh. It's just not that important. It's not that big. But. Remember when the Obama people said in 2012 that uh, they did essentially exactly what Cambridge Analytica had done? And people pointed this out. They said, wow, this seems like quite a bit of hypocrisy here. Obama's people do it. It's amazing. It's groundbreaking. Trump's campaign maybe does it via third party Cambridge Analytica. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh, they're all freaking out about it. So Zuckerberg uh, dealt with this as well during the hearing today. There's been a lot of talk about uh, Cambridge and what they've done in the last campaign. In 2008 and 2012, there was also a lot of this done. Uh, One of the lead digital uh, heads of the Obama campaign said recently, Facebook was surprised we were able to suck out the whole social graph, but they didn't stop us once they realized that was what we were doing. They came to office in the days following the election recruiting and were very candid that they allowed us to do things they wouldn't have allowed someone else to do because they were on our side. Now that's a direct quote from one of the heads of the Obama digital team. What what would she mean by they Facebook Elements. were on our side? Congressman, we didn't allow the Obama campaign to do anything that any developer on the platform wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. So she no was making an inaccurate statement in your point of view? Yes. They're saying she lied. That strikes me as kind of convenient, doesn't it? Why would she lie about that? Doesn't seem like a smart thing to do. You know what I mean? It's always good to think about the motivations for a lie. Why would somebody say that? They just wanted some attention? Clearly, if it wasn't true, that, that person could have been risking their reputation, maybe their job. So that strikes me as uh, a little simple. Someone's lying, either Zuckerberg is not telling the truth or somebody else, but there's somebody who's needs, needs to come clean on the whole situation. I'm not sure who it is. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, by the way, the, we, uh, in the third hour, I want to give you a little bit of a preview of where, where we're going. We talk about the opioid epidemic. I have some information about the pharma, big pharma companies that are going to be testifying soon. And I want to talk to you about that component of the opioid crisis. Also, uh, we're going to be joined by an entrepreneur from the Midwest, from Indiana, uh, and talk to him about one town in Indiana, the Wall Street Journal profile, where they're just crushing it. They're doing really well economically. 
so well that they actually can't even fill all the jobs they have. We'll discuss that in that sector, that industry. Um, and then I'll share some thoughts with you on uh, hip hop, the current state of hip hop. That's going to be interesting. Uh, and uh, coming up here in just a moment, the most beloved people in the world are, oh, we have data, my friends. We are going to get into it. Unfortunately, it's not the most beloved person in the Freedom Hut because that would be either John or producer Mike. But it's the world. We'll talk about it. Stay with me. Who is the most admired person in the world? Well, we know this list is a sham because I'm not even in the top 20, which makes me very sad. It's a big bummer. Uh, but it, it is quite a list. This, according to YouGov, which is a, a, what, a polling company? I don't know much about YouGov. Uh, but uh, anyway, some very interesting uh, bits of information on this one. The 2018 World's Most Admired. Who wants to guess at number one? I know some of you are like, Barack Obama. False. Wrong. It is, in fact, Bill Gates in the number one slot. Barack Obama is number two. The number two most admired person on planet Earth is Barack Obama. Who wants to guess at number three? This was way out of left field for me. Jackie Chan, the actor. How? Why? I have absolutely no idea. I, I cannot even begin to tell you why that is. Uh, but then you got to list uh, Jack Ma who is the founder of Alibaba. He is China's um, equivalent of Jeff Bezos. You know, he's he is the guy right now in the digital space. Uh, Vladimir Putin comes in at number six. That's very good, yes. Vladimir Putin, he takes care of Russia. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, that's just sport. Oh, he's so good at sports. Soccer is the world sport, whatever. And then Lionel Messi, who's like the other best soccer player in the world. Warren Buffett, America's financial grandpa, comes in at 12. And then you get David Beckham, Elon Musk, Michael Jordan, MJ, still on the list. Number 15, most admired. He's ahead of the Pope, everybody. Literally one space ahead of the Pope is Michael Jordan. 17 is Donald Trump. Yay. 19 is Recep Erdogan. And, yeah, there you, you got it. So, uh, and the 20s, Imran Khan. Not really surprising. I, I guess Bill Gates is so admired because of the charitable work that he does, which is nice. Um, which is nice. He's got that going for him. And you look at these other names. The Dalai Lama is on there, by the way. I would have thought the Dalai I'll be honest. I thought the Dalai Lama would probably come in at number one. Does anyone know anything about the Dalai Lama? Big hitter, the Lama. But no, people have no, they don't know anything. It's who's going to catch that reference? Probably all of you. Uh, but no one knows anything about the Dalai Lama. All they know is that when you die, you will achieve full consciousness. No, you don't know anything about the Lama. I don't know anything about the Lama. Flowing robes. The whole thing, right? People just know that they're supposed to like the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is the human equivalent of, a muse of museums. Did you like the museum? You always have to say yes. Did you even go to the museum in that foreign country that you were in, that foreign city? You have to say you like the museum anyway. You're not allowed to say you don't like a museum, and you're not allowed to say, except for maybe the Museum of Sex, which is actually not far from me in New York City, which I will tell you I've never been to, 
And I've heard it is not good. I've heard it is disappointing. Um, there's that. It's I actually, true story, and it was not me. Whenever I tell these stories, I know Mike is looking at me like he thinks that this is me. The true story, but not my story. I had a friend who took a girl there on a, yeah, yeah, right. A friend who took a girl there on a first date, took a young lady to the Museum of Sex on date one. Who want, It is a bold move. Who wants to guess if there was a date number two? Eh. Uh, yeah, that, that, was not the, uh, that was not the way to go, apparently. So, anyway, it's tough when you're in the gift shop and you're like, do you want the whip and chain or do you want the chocolate in the shape of a... Mm. So, anyway, um, where was I in this? Yeah, you have to say you like the llama, even if you know nothing about the llama. Oh, but the women... Gosh, I don't want to be I don't want to be all about the patriot. I will just a, a note here because there's some uh, there's some uh, B-roll making the rounds on CNN now of young Trump. And people say that I have young Trump hair. False. My hair is far superior to young Trump. OK, I, I mine just mine just grows in in proportion like a like a Chia pet, like a thick bush. It just grows out and out and out. I don't need to like swirl it around or anything. The poof, as I call it, is all natural. Or the swoop. I actually prefer the swoop. Although, to be fair, Trump has more of a swoop, had and still has more of a swoop than I do. I digress. Uh, So the most admired women in the world. That's also part of this list. Uh, You have, okay, producer Mike, did you see this list? No, no, don't, no cheating. Who's the most, who's the most admired woman in the world? Come on. You got to tell me a name. I want a name. Michelle Obama, very good guess. Number two. Look at you, though. Producer Mike's on his game. I will tell you, I would have guessed Oprah Winfrey, which I thought would be a pretty safe guess. It turns out Michelle Obama's number two, Oprah Winfrey's number three. So you're silver medal, I'm bronze medal, respectively. Number one, Angelina Jolie, which to me is like, I don't get it, right? I mean... Her English accent in the Tomb Raider movies was laughable. She, you know, she she's been she's did she wait did she break up Brad and Jennifer or did Jennifer break up her and I forget how that went. Miss Molly will yell at me if I get this. She broke up Brad and Jennifer. She that's right. She's the home wrecker. Home wrecker number one on the oh his love yeah John I like John always takes the positive point of view. All right John, I'll I'll, I'll let you I'll let you get away with it today on that one. By the way, number five on the list. Hello, it's Hillary. Oh yeah, Mike just spit out his water. That's I was looking for that all day. Um, number six, Emma Watson, the chick from the Harry Potter movies, right? The the young lady from the Harry Potter movie, isn't that right? Right? Yeah, that's who Emma. I don't. Even, I didn't even know she was that famous. I'm learning something new every day. Malala Yousafzai. That that I can uh, that I can understand. Angela Merkel. Yeah, Angela, for wearing non-gender distinguishing suits at all times. And uh, Taylor Swift on here. I love T-Swift. You guys all know that, so respect. Madonna? Eh. It's, it's gotten weird. That's all I have to say about Madonna. It's gotten weird. You know? That's, that's it. You don't need to say anything else. I don't, need, I don't want to say anything that's going to get me in trouble. Uh, Gal Gadot is on here. And then there are a whole bunch of women that like I don't even know who they are. So... I can't even tell you who that. Who's Aishwarya Rai? You know, I've no, I don't know who that is. I think it's an actress, a Bollywood actress. But if that's like the first woman to discover a cure for cancer in South Asia, apologies. I think it's a Bollywood actress though. Um, and then, 
Yang Mi, don't know who that is. Fan Bing Bing, don't know who that is. Zhao Wei, don't know who that is. And then Elizabeth Warren, just sneaking in under the wire. Because they needed some diversity on this list. So that's what Elizabeth Warren provides. So that's the good news. I, this was pretty interesting, folks. Uh, I don't know how, how accurate this is and, and how much people... Uh, I don't know how much people will look at this and say it's scientific, but I, I just want to share it with you. So some very interesting stuff on here. Very interesting stuff. Barack and Michelle Obama are basically the two most admired people in the world, though, is really what it comes down to, according to this poll on the Internet. Uh, so there's that. Um, some other names on the list that I was kind of excited to see. Clint Eastwood, Heinmarks. Uh, who else we got here? Uh, Netanyahu makes the list, but they're, they're not in the top 20. All right, we got to come back into uh, some other stuff here. I'll hit a quick break. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show. Um, you probably noticed this from listening to me for a while. I, I like to use Hour 3 to talk about whatever's just on my mind. Uh, I guess this is, lately I've been, I've been thinking about the structure. People have been asking me, what's the structure of your show? And I would say, well, the first hour is what's happening? What's big? What do we need to talk about? The second hour is usually more, tends to be more national security. Also, just maybe more of a, a drill down a deep dive into something that I think matters. And the third hour is just whatever's on my mind, right? Uh, this, though, is a topic that crosses all of those different uh, areas. Uh, the opioid epidemic, massive, urgent national issue, uh, very newsworthy, although not really all that much in the news right now, uh, and, and also something that I've been exploring and learning a lot more about. It's just a fascinating story. The, the quick news hook on this, what got me thinking about it today, is that opioid distributors are going to testify before a House committee uh, coming up soon. Five, this is from TheHill.com, five executives of opioid distribution companies will testify before the House Energy and Commerce Committee in May about how millions of pain pills found their way to small West Virginia towns. Uh, and I would note that there's a, there's a lot of... Uh, backlash and anger at these uh, different pill companies, different pharmaceutical companies for uh, the opioid epidemic. You look at some of the numbers here, you see things like uh, Miami Lucan uh, sent 4,000. Uh, that's a com- that's one of the corporations that sent 4,000, uh, sorry, 4 million pain pills to Oceana, which is a town of 1,390 people from 2008 to 2015. Four million opioid pills, seven years, 1,300 people. It's a lot of pills, right? You, you work that out per, per person, per day. That's a lot of pills. And so this is the other, the other side of, I've been talking a lot about the cartels, which the media is just straight up suppressing because big pharma is corporation. They're, they, the media is okay with pharma being bad guys. They're not okay with illegal immigrants being the bad guys, even when they are. And the cartels have had a huge hand in. And I'm wondering when someone will really catch on to the fact that it is a true statement to say that illegal immigrants from Mexico are responsible for tens of thousands of preventable deaths in this country. So 
And that's not to say they're directly causing them as though they're murdering people. That's just to say that tens of thousands of people are dead. And I mean, I think the number, if you add it up, would really be in the hundreds of thousands since about the year 2000 because of what the cartels have been doing. But the pharmaceutical companies have also been up to some really shady stuff. And I would direct you to a book that I'm actually in the middle of right now. Um, it's called Dreamland. And it's the true tale of, of America's opiate epidemic by Sam Quinones, who is a uh, who is an L.A. Times journalist. But it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. Uh, it's Like I said, Dreamland by Sam Quinones, because it takes you through the whole story of how did we get to this point where you have 64,000 people a year dying from opioid overdoses? That's a lot of people. You start thinking about how many of those those people you look at this as not just the the deaths, but also the lives shattered from their family members and the just the lost futures and the lost productivity. And you realize this is affecting millions of people. Sixty sixty three thousand dead in one year is affecting at a minimum hundreds of thousands of people, really millions of people in very direct ways. But one of the big parts of this that the book Dreamland goes into, which I'm, I'm, I read it at night before I go to sleep these days, I'm, I'm halfway through it, uh, is that there was a, a revolution in the thinking of pain doctors in about the 1990s. And there were some, uh, there were some pharmaceutical companies, one in particular, but I won't name it because I don't want to say the wrong one. Uh, that decided that they were going to run with a statistic that only 1% of people would become addicted to opioids if prescribed them. And it's it's hard to believe. You you read the backstory to that in the book, and it turns out it's a letter that somebody wrote to a journal of medicine that suggested that in a small sample size of end-of-life end of cancer patients, only 1% of them were addicted to opioids. Uh, you can imagine all the different reasons that that's not a sufficient study for anything and that was seized upon by a big farm and they were just they were selling pills it was a bonanza and then it became if you didn't treat pain it became one of the the vital signs you know you go in they got to do your your pulse and uh your what is it your pulse and then um uh, you know heartbeat and or is that the same thing? i can't whatever the four or five vital signs are i'm not a doctor right doesn't matter uh the things that doctors always do they put on the pl- pressure cuff they take your pulse I don't know. They make you add. They make you no, but that's not with the tongue depressor. Whatever. They they added pain as one of the as one of the, uh, the the markers that they have to measure every time you go to a doctor's office. And that's where some of you may have seen this. They created this. This was all done in the '90s. They created this scale of like really unhappy face to kind of unhappy face for children, so they could point what their pain was. And then they had this arbitrary one to ten pain scale for adults. Well, somebody who was addicted to oxycontin in particular which has a large dose of oxycodone in it which is time release guess what drug addicts figured out what you know what you want to do you break up the oxycontin and then you can snort it and instead of it being time release it all goes into your system at once so these are the things by the way you'll find out from this book it's a fascinating story but Pharma companies were running around selling this stuff, saying it was non-addictive, and it's incredibly addictive. Uh, anything that affects your brain 
based on the way the, the way that opiates do uh, opioids opiates people kind of use these a little bit interchangeably uh, has to do with the chemical structure and compound I, th- I think that the opioid is similar chemical uh, compound opiate is actually derived from the opium poppy uh, so I'm just telling you if you get a chance dreamland it's an incredible book and it explains how it happened that you had all of these uh opioid epidemics popping up many opioid epidemics popping up in towns that didn't have a lot of crime didn't have a lot of gangs it was a combination of uh, abuse from pharmaceutical companies and the change in the doctor thinking was, was one of the things that i thought was so amazing all of a sudden if you went into a doctor and you said you were in pain the doctor was worried that if he did he or she didn't give you a script for pain pills they might be negligent and even you could sue them for failing to treat your pain. Think about what that does. Every junkie now who goes into a doctor has the, le- has the upper hand, has the leverage. Every addict who goes in, people would get, and, and they, they, they decided to expand what they would treat with. Originally, opioids, they realized, very, very dangerous. I mean, back in the 60s and 70s, they're like incredibly addictive. You got to stay away from this stuff. Then going into the 80s, especially in the 90s, it was, oh, we're not just going to use this for terminal cancer patients to literally ease their pain, palliative care. We're going to use it for back pain. We're going to use it for chronic pelvic pain. We're, uh, what hurts? They started deciding to, uh, to write people scripts for uh, Oxycontin, Percocet. There's a whole bunch of them. Um, you know, people are familiar with them, right? Then they became kind of a part of pop culture and people would talk about abusing them and uh, but it, it's a remarkable story. You know, the cartel component I've usually focused on, but the way that medicine was really turned upside down on this issue of pain and pain pills and the consequences. I mean, it is hollowed out some of these small towns you know, they're never going to be the same. And now they're looking now they're looking for this is what this Hill story is about. Opioid distributors are going to be testifying that they, they look for criminal charges against some of these pharmaceutical companies and some of these doctors you know pill mills they go after them they go after them hard now Uh, dea gets involved with people who uh, are writing scripts for too many pain pills or and and i'll tell you actually because the doctors figure out what the and this is a conversation i actually had with the dea agent once uh because of the way the doctors write the scripts they're always trying to make it a little bit more like they're hedging toward Less drugs is invest. They can investigate even less drugs because then the doctors just structure it so they stay below it. So it's a cat and mouse game. Anyway, check out if you're looking for a book to read about all this. Check out Dreamland. Um, it's so well written. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. Uh, we'll be back with uh, a story about a Midwest town that is booming right now and the industry that is supporting it. It's in Indiana. I'll tell you that. But for more, you got to stay with me. I, I oh, oh, oh one more thing. I also saw. Uh, it's it's in the headlines now. All the violence in Mexico. So don't think that I'm I'm not going to be following that very closely. What was it? Puerto Vallarta now had some. Where, where something went down, producer Mike. Where was it? Oh no, Cancun. It was Cancun. It was like some 14 murders in 24 hours. I think was the in Cancun, Mexico, an all time record. So this is people talk about this plague, this pandemic of opioids in this country. It's a massive problem. And we really, as a country, need to educate ourselves more on how this is happening. Yeah, it's some, somewhat the, the pharma companies being irresponsible but and, and the medical community having a lot of bad advice and regulations for a long time. 
but it's really the cartels and illegal immigration. All right, now with that, we'll come back and talk about uh, RV share in just a few. Welcome back, everybody, to the uh, Buck Sexton Show. I wanted to tell you a a good news story from the uh, employment side. You know that we've talked about how unemployment's incredibly low, but people also say that manufacturing needs to make a comeback. There's one place in the country right now that was just highlighted in the Wall Street Journal where there's not just a healthy manufacturing sector, there's a manufacturing boom going on, and it's a very specific part of the economy. This Wall Street Journal piece was titled, The Future of America's Economy Looks a Lot Like Elkhart, Indiana. Here's what it says. The self-proclaimed RV capital of the world gives a glimpse of what the American economy looks like when operating at full tilt. High school students around here skip college for factory jobs that offer great pay and benefits. For hire signs sprout like roadside weeds, and workers are so flush that car dealers can't keep new pickups on the lot. At the same time, the strains are showing. Employers can't hang on to employees and house prices are zooming. The worker shortage prompted a local Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant to offer $150 in signing bonus. A McDonald's failed to open for lunch last fall because managers couldn't corral enough hands at $8 an hour. So you got a really big boom going on in RVs in Elkhart, Indiana, which is having all kinds of interesting economic implications. Let's bring on somebody who knows this sector backwards and forwards and also just knows the Midwest and the economy out there. We have Joel Clark with us now. He is the founder and president of RV Share. Joel, great to have you joining us. Buck, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So you are an entrepreneur and you're specifically dealing in the RV sector. But Just tell me first about why is the RV sector recreational vehicles? Why are they booming right now? And Elkhart is just one example of this. Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of the boom, if you look at the RV sales industry in in particular, and you can kind of break the RV industry into a few kind of a few different parts. One is RV sales, but then another part is RV rental, which obviously overlaps a lot, but is different too. And that's where I largely focus um, with RV share. But, you know, the RV sales, kind of the, the boom-bust cycle of RV sales, if you look at it, is very largely a function of the economy as a whole and very much a function of oil prices, which makes sense. If gas goes up to $4 a gallon, all of a sudden taking the family across country to go check out Yellowstone becomes, uh, you know, less of a budget vacation, and all of a sudden the cost really goes to the roof. So it, it was a great piece. I, I love seeing the Wall Street Journal give um, – give Elkhart the love it deserves. Elkhart's an amazing place. Obviously, the RV industry is just, you know, fantastic. It's it's a joy to be a part of, to help people. Really, at the end of the day, what everyone in the RV industry sells is family time, which is like, there. it's hard to be, you know, more excited about uh, a product in an industry that you're, you're in. So I, I think it was a great piece, but I think that it actually kind of, in a way, missed the mark on what the kind of, I think, the real story is. And I think the real story is actually buried a little further down in that article. And I think it it really gets pulled out by a quote from Shelley Moore, who's the urban planner of Elkhart. And she kind of talks about kind of that boom bust cycle of RV sales in itself. Uh, There's a quote where it says, uh, Shelley Moore, the Elkhart urban planner, said that the city is in a race against the clock, unquote, to build a more diverse and sustainable economy. Um, so, you know, really what you have and what I think the article kind of misses the mark on is that, you know, the, the Midwest and the middle American economy is, 
is at the end of the day so much bigger than these these boom-bust cycles. And RV sales are just one part of the RV industry as a whole. And, uh, it's you know, if you watch the video that accompanied that article, there's kind of this feeling there of it's a, it's a gravy train now in RV sales, but everyone's kind of waiting for the the next bust for the, the sales article when that all, all changes. Um, at RV Share, we're kind of uniquely positioned to see a different angle because we are in the RV rental space. And one thing in the RV rental space, uh, they say that RV rentals are good in a good economy and great in a bad economy because an RV rental, unlike RV ownership... This becomes an asset for people, right? It's not just something to have fun and hang out with the family in. Absolutely. And that's, that's book, what we see as kind of the real story. is if you, you can look historically at the whole RV sales industry and it goes up, down, up, down. And if you lay oil prices over that, up, down, up, down, it makes sense. So what we're building at RV Share and what I'm really focused on is like, hey, Let's build middle American economics that work in a downturn. Let's help these 11 million families that have bought this RV, and in good times it's a vacation machine, but what we're really focused on is we're getting ready for the next bad time, and how do we help families turn that into a cash-generating asset when the next market correction happens? So you've basically created Airbnb for RVs, right? That's a fair way to describe what I know the platform is different and specific and proprietary, but in terms of how it functions, this is a way for people to make money off the RV that sits in their backyard for a lot of folks, right? 48 weeks of the year. They're not using this thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you hit the nail on the head or more. And our, our mission that's up on the wall all over here is we create entrepreneurs. You know, we, we do that by helping folks rent RVs all over the country. But our focus is, you know, these families who they've got that RV sitting in their driveway 48, 50 weeks a year. Let's help you take that RV and turn it into an extra 20, 30, 40 grand a year in income. So, you know, this, like I said, the, the piece is fantastic. I love, you know, seeing the industry get Wall Street Journal attention. You know, yeah, Indiana getting a high five for a booming economy is pretty cool. Right. You, you don't see that every day. But like I said, I think the real story underneath it is, you know, even the people in the article are openly talking about, you know, this is a boom bust cycle. The bust is coming. And that's where me and my team are, are really focused and where we think the real story is, is the way that we brace for the next bust is we create tools and infrastructure that empower the middle American entrepreneur. And there's way more middle American entrepreneurs than, you know, you ever see on the news or read about online. Joel Clark is founder and president of RV Share. To see more of what they're doing, you can go to rvshare.com and you can find the perfect RV rental that way as well. Joel, great to have you, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. Buck, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right, team, we're going to roll into a quick break. Uh, When we come back, I'm going to share some thoughts Get ready for it. Brace, brace yourself, my friends. When you come back, I'm going to tell you about hip-hop. Buck's take on the John. Don't be frightened. It's going to be okay. I'm going to get through it. We're going to talk about some hip-hop music and how I think some of it is that there's a little too much, a little too much profanity. We'll be right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Team, I'm curmudgeonly, but I'm not prudish. But I got to tell you, today, as I was still waging my losing campaign against Dad Bod. All right, I am Hans. And I am Franz, and we We just just want to pop you off. I found myself trying to get motivated to do some burpees 
which I'm convinced only exists to make us all feel weak and pathetic and lame. Oh, they're so good for your metabolic rate. Yeah, that's right. I really want to flop around on the ground like a fish and fling flop sweat from my poofy hair across the room every time I jump up in the air. Or then there's kettlebell swings, which for those of you who are familiar, you know what I'm talking about. Every time I do one of those swings, I'm like, is this the end of future generations of bucks? It's a scary thing, you know? It's a, it's a close-fought ordeal every time you swing one of those kettlebells between your knees as hard and fast as you can. But I was trying to get motivated for the workout, and I was looking around on Spotify because I'm cool, like as the kids are. I'm pretty sure, like such as... I believe that our ed- education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and... There was a time when I would uh, talk some smack about Spotify, how it was just for the music hipsters. Now I use it all the time. Anyway, I was trying to get a... And by the way, you guys can follow me on Spotify and then make fun of all of the Creed and Taylor Swift that I have in my music playlist. I have public playlists, so you can just find me there. Yeah, that's right. T-Swift gets me fired up, okay? That's just how I roll. I can just feel all the emails cascading in telling me my man card is revoked forever but anyway i was thinking about or trying to find a good playlist and i found some that were you know for workout specifically and some of them were hip-hop specific now i grew up listening to believe it or not a lot of hip-hop here in new york city in the early 90s it was all notorious big and tupac and Nas and Cypress Hill and House of Pain. And these were the uh, music acts that my peers all listened to all across the city. It was there was really a hip hop explosion across the country. But you know, I'm a little older and, and wiser about all things in life now. And I was listening to one of these hip hop mixes in part so I can sound cool when I talk to Miss Molly because she's a bit younger. She's not even 30 yet. So she's a bit younger than me. Uh, and, and, and I can be like, yeah, today I was listening to Cardi B and Gucci Mane and Lil Wayne and Jeezy on my music playlist. That's right. But I was listening to it, and I have to tell you, those were some of the artists on this uh, playlist I was listening to today. And I, I, I caught a lot of the lyrics. And I'm not somebody who is particularly uh, squeamish, and I'm very anti-censorship. But I got to tell you, there's a little part of me that's like, why is it? That in this day and age of Me Too, when there's so much uh, discussion of the, the need for uh, equality among women and, and treating women with greater respect and ending sexual harassment, hip-hop is considered a completely separate space in that whole conversation. There were things that were being rapped about, and these are new rap songs, right? Or, or we call it hip-hop now, but when I was a kid, we called it rap. But these are new hip-hop songs that are out that are topping the charts. Uh, Those are big. Apparently, Gucci Mane and Lil Wayne, and these are big big music acts. I I know about Lil Wayne because, in fact, I know the NYPD detective who arrested him and sent him to prison for a weapons possession. Story for another time. But the lyrics in these songs, I mean, there was one title of a song, for example, that really caught my eye. It was Bottles and B, the second word... Uh, is also a term for a female dog. 
And I was like, you know, that seems to me to be pretty offensive. And I'm not somebody who talks a lot about what's offensive and, and what's not. I, I, I like a live in that live kind of world. And then I'm going to tell you, I really felt like I'm, I'm out of it because there were terms that were used. And I was like, what is that word? I, I know I sound like a huge nerd right now, but I, I, I was unfamiliar with some of the slang. And so I, I did a little poking around. And sure enough, I found out that uh, it is very graphic sexual commentary using slang terms that is just all over. And these are big songs right now. And sure enough, today I'm thinking that I'm in the gym and then I see Newsbusters here has a piece it got it got uh, linked today in the drudge report so it feels like there's some synchronicity here hateful hip-hop the top u.s r&b hip-hop songs objectify women 55 times so i'm not i'm not alone here i'm not crazy in thinking that this stuff is uh, uh a little bit uh a little bit too much and i'm not saying that it should be illegal or it should be censored i'm just saying why is this not part of the social discussion the social commentary we have why does me too not touch hip-hop it's a question i would like someone else maybe to answer but i I did wonder today myself when i was in the gym burpees and kettlebell swings and other terrible things that i know are good for you and yada yada but i was really taken aback by how graphic uh, some of the language was and it's not a not a lot of stuff about like uh, you know, love and romance, and I, I can handle double entendres. In these hip-hop songs, if you know the words that are being used, it's just clinical, graphic terminology. <sighs> I know, I sound, I sound like I'm a little bit of a, of a nerd, but it's the way it is. All right, we're going to roll into uh, Roll Call. Stay with me. show ain't over yet folks keeping it real it's time for roll call yeah we got some cool cats in the freedom hunt daddy-o now let's get into some roll call uh, if you want to be a part of it facebook.com slash buck sexton and uh let's get into it bill writes uh hey buck it was great meeting you a few weeks ago back in savannah Well, great to meet you too, Bill. Thank you very much for the note. Really enjoyed my trip down in Savannah, hanging out with our friends at Black Rifle Coffee and Nine Line Apparel. Uh, Let's see what we got here. Steven writes, bad movie adaptations of books, Starship Troopers. You know, Steven, I'm going to have to diverge with you here. I thought that Starship Troopers... As corny as it was, and it was corny. I, I make I make no bones about that. Pretty watchable in its own weird way. Uh, I thought it was it was campy, but I I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was actually a pretty good, pretty good thing to check out. Um, Paul writes, uh, "Hey Buck, two things. Uh, keep thinking. Why don't we set up our own air base on Kurdish territory? It would give us." the ability to supply air power and a base of operations in the area. Your emergency eye experience. Oh, your emergency eye experience with the ER loaded with illegal sounds mild. Try visiting the ERs in California. I was a medical rep for years and saw firsthand how many people abuse this privilege. It's appalling uh, from Paul and Paul. I totally agree. And people who talk about illegal immigration and just dismiss things like, 
what happens when remember i'm not saying that the illegal I mean, that the, the emergency room was full of illegal aliens who had emergencies and were no no they go for the first line of care because they won't end up paying for it you have to be treated and so there there will be no bill they'll be they will not pay and so i i'm there saying i need someone to operate on my eye and there are other people there who according to one of the nurses were a lot of them were illegal uh, and that, that's a pretty fair guess, considering I'm here in New York City and what the demographic profile is for New York uh, and the emergency room usage that goes on here. And uh, you get people that are taking vision tests and getting eyeglasses. And I'm not begrudging that people want eyeglasses or that they need basic vision tests in a, you know, because they're illegals. I get it. I'm just saying it's the emergency room. And there are a whole lot of people who did not have anything even in the universe of an emergency and Paul is telling me he saw the same thing in California uh, when he was working as a medical rep. I totally believe it. Um, William writes, uh, Buck, why isn't there a special prosecutor to find out who tortured and killed Deputy Federal Prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003? He worked out of the federal courthouse in Baltimore. There's a massive cover-up regarding this case. Uh, I'm now investigating this terrible crime myself. Um, well, William, I have no idea about this case at all. So I'm going to have to take a look at this one. And I, I can't give you anything beyond thanks for the note. And uh, I'll take a look uh, next up here. Uh, Alex writes, hey, Buck, love this show. Shields high, fairly new listener. And you've got yourself a new regular listener. Now I'm told that Irish gypsies are called tinkers. I thought they were called travelers. Maybe they're called tinkers. I know they don't like gypsy and they definitely don't like being called pikers, which I think is uh, quite an, an insult over there. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And uh, thank you very much, Alex, for being a new part of the team. Uh, next here. Got a lot of notes this week. Appreciate it. Uh, of course, I love your show, and I can't wait for more Shield High episodes. I agree that tossing a few sun-dried tomatoes into a dish is not very appetizing, but sun-dried tomatoes blended like a pesto makes the best pizza sauce ever. Hmm, Sharon, I will give that one some thought. Um, you, you may be able to convert me. I, I do have an irrational hatred of sun-dried tomatoes, or maybe it's quite rational, actually. But uh, there might be ways that you could bring me over to your side of things. Mary uh, writes, hey, Buck, if you're looking for a way to get rid of any physical books, check out paperbackswap.com. Also, thank you for all that you say and do. You're a blessing. I look forward to hearing your thoughts and opinions and really enjoy your history lessons, too. Uh, well, thank you very much, Mary. And also, I'd note that uh, Mary wrote Office Space uh, just yesterday when I was on air. In reference to what I said about stapler, swing line, stapler, Milton Adams, swing line, stapler. Mel, we're going to need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, we I, uh, I have some new people coming it, in and no, we need all the space we can get. But there's no space. So if you could in, just go ahead and it, pack up your it, stuff. And move it down there. But no, that would be terrific. I, I, I was no, okay. I could stay. It, excuse me. Yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler. <laughs> I, I believe. I believe you have my stapler. I love it, man. Office bases. It is a timeless classic uh, of Mike Judge's entire catalog of of work. 
uh, office space may be my very favorite. Although I, Silicon Valley was really good. I think it's gone a little downhill in the last couple of seasons. I'll be honest. It's not nearly the writing is just not as funny and as clever as it was before. But Mary, you are correct. That was office space. Thank you very much. Great to hear from you. Uh, William writes, Buck, you don't know how tired I am of talking heads who have never been in harm's way banging the war drum. Well, Will, uh, William, I, I understand and I agree. I think it's far too easy to always talk about how we just need to go over there and kick butt, man. I, I know what kicking butt entails. I've seen others do it up close and personal, and uh, there is nothing that is more serious in terms of a national discussion than when we put our own uh, in harm's way. And I, I think that uh, staying out of Syria uh, is is an absolutely essential uh, essential policy goal for the uh, Trump administration. I really do. And when I say staying out, I mean no land invasion, no massive occupation, none of that. We should be doing things. We just don't have to do everything. Uh, Brian is next up. He writes, Buck, love the show. I'm 55, but was definitely able to relate to all of the John Hughes films. I truly believe John Hughes was the Shakespeare of that generation. I'm tired of the rewriting of history. Well, Brian, I, I like John Hughes films, too, and I think they're really important in my uh, in my formative years. And I just would note that there's really very little now that Disney films, John Hughes films, I mean, Disney cartoons uh, back from my youth. Nothing is able to stand up to the new regime of political correctness. And we just need to stop. You know, we need to stop that from overtaking the arts, from overtaking our conversations. It's just too much. Uh, Next up, we have Roger, who writes, Buck, for confessing to having Creed on your iPod, you are now charged with crimes against humanity, shields high. Well, all I have to say to you, Roger, is I'm six feet from the edge and I'm thinking maybe six feet. All right, I'll stop. But that's my response to you, Roger. Uh, next up is Eric, who writes uh, about nine minutes into Tuesday's podcast. You're killing me with the not my president thing. Well, Eric, I hope you enjoyed that. No! president not my president they thought that was a really clever chant here on the streets of new york city they were wrong but that did not stop them uh we got philip here writes again the affirmative action culture segment was great uh and and that and that's artificially segregates our society great spot on wednesday confirming uh concerning affirmative action at uh, penn law too uh, well, thank you very much, Philip. I appreciate that. Um, next up, we got Matthew, who writes, Love your show, and was awesome to meet you at Talk Tank in Fort Wayne. About 15, 20 years ago, the Springfield, Illinois Police Department had to turn down white applicants in order to hire less qualified minority applicants in the name of diversity. I've been mad about that ever since, and have even put Native American on my job applications, even though I'm only 116th Native American. Shields high, Matthew. Well, Matthew, look, I understand, you know, there's been a lot of big fights here in New York City over the FDNY, the fire department, which is much more homogenous, much more white than any social justice warriors are okay with. And so they've done all these things where they try to change the tests, but then they run afoul of, well, are are people taking different tests for the same fire department job? Because that would seem on its face to be discriminatory. Uh, so it, it happens all over the country and it's something we need to keep our eye on and, uh, and keep fighting this fight. I think it's very important. All right. One more here. Ernest who writes two deep, two deep dive requests from a longtime fan back in the real from back in the real news days. 
Number one, symbolism of the U.S. flag and flag etiquette. I doubt youngsters have heard that the red and white stripes signify the blood-soaked bandages of continental soldiers. Number two, bigger government as a result of revenue sharing post-Vietnam War. Instead of cutting taxes without war expense, taxes remained up and government grants grew. I'm 71 and I remember these things. Please share them with your younger listeners from uh, Ernest in Yuma. Well, Ernest, thank you so much for being with me from way back when. Uh, Ernest and Becky, appreciate it. And uh, with that, my friends, I'm going to have to clear out the Freedom Hut for the rest of the night. Uh, I got guys here. I got uh, Mike and John. They need to go home, so I can't just keep on going. Otherwise, I would. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Please do spread word about the show. Check out some of our advertisers that we've mentioned throughout the program. It's a way to support them and us and get some great gear for yourself. Until next time, my friends, Shields High!